Each year, about 13.6 million units of whole blood are donated in the US. Another 53.5 million units are collected in the form of plasma, a liquid element in human blood containing vital antibodies and proteins. This is different from whole blood donation. Blood plasma is uh, usually not used in its original form. Usually it's pooled with um, the plasma of hundreds or even thousands of others, and then it's uh, treated and manufactured to use uh, in, in medications. There is a multi-billion dollar blood plasma industry, and there are four industries that own about 80% of the blood plasma centers in the U.S. Through these privately owned manufacturers, American donors provide 94% of the plasma used around the world. The reason is simple. Unlike whole blood donors, the majority of plasma donors in the U.S. receive compensation. Compensation for blood plasma is, uh, has been banned in most countries. The United States being one of the few countries that allows for compensation for plasma. For a growing low-income population, giving plasma is more than a good deed to save lives. It has become an economic coping strategy. If people are having to sell their plasma because they can't make ends meet, then what does that say about the safety net in the United States? My name is Annalise Ochoa and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan. My research focuses on how blood plasma donation has become an economic coping strategy in the United States, the expansion of the industry and the experience of people who give plasma. Today, Ms. Oshawa is with us here to share her findings about the industry, its regulations, and its potential impacts on the vulnerable and underrepresented community in the United States. Um, can you briefly talk about the plasma donation and the plasma industry? So usually um, when I do this, we talk a little bit about what is blood plasma, because uh, I've seen that sometimes people get blood plasma confused with blood with, or with whole blood donation. So what is blood plasma? Uh, blood plasma is the yellowish colored liquid component of blood. It transports nutrients, hormones, and proteins to parts of the body that need it. So due to its nutrient-rich properties, blood plasma is used in medicines to treat a range of medical conditions, including a range of coagulation disorders such as hemophilia, immunodeficiency, and autoimmune diseases, along with other rare diseases and emergency conditions. So um, this is different from whole blood donation in the sense that blood plasma is uh, usually not used in its original form. Usually it's pooled with um, the plasma of hundreds or even thousands of others, and then it's uh, treated and manufactured to use uh, in, in medications. There is a multi-billion dollar blood plasma industry, and there are uh, four industries that own about 80% of the blood plasma centers in the US. And those are CSL Plasma, which is an Australian company, um, Griffles, also, um, known as Biomats, so usually the name of the, on the store is Biomat. Um, that's a Spanish company. Then there's Takeda, which is um, BioLife, and they're a Japanese company. And then Octopharma, which is a Swiss company. Uh, so how did 
the plasma industry become so big in America? So that's the long story. <laughs> so uh, compensation for blood plasma is uh, has been banned in most countries. The United States being one of the few countries that allows for compensation for plasma, that makes it a really appealing. It makes it a really appealing place for companies to come to um, open plasma centers uh, to collect plasma. So in the United States, uh, people can give plasma two times per week and 104 times per year. And in most countries, um, the limits are far lower than that. Uh, so that's why companies have come to the U.S. and have uh, just really started to expand. Um, when I started doing this research, I think in 2017, one of the analyses that I did, there were 630 centers at the time, and now there are over 1,100. So in about five years, they've almost doubled. And I think you mentioned at the very beginning that the U.S. has like the least restrictive uh, regulations on plasma donation. Um, so can you tell us a little more about that? So in most countries, you are not allowed to be compensated for plasma uh, for plasma donation. And the reason for that is that there was a tainted blood scandal in the 1980s when um, plasma companies were really relying on high-risk populations, including prisoners. Uh, so there were actually plasma centers inside U.S. prisons um, where they were using that to, to make their plasma protein therapies or their plasma-based medications. At the time, the te technology was not what it is today. And so what ended up happening is that those pooled uh, plasma uh, ended up having HIV and hepatitis and other diseases. And then once they were manufactured and sent all over the world to treat patients, thousands of people ended up with HIV, including children, um, and people died. And so after that, the WHO uh, made a recommendation that in order to preserve the, um, the quality of the blood supply, that they recommended that plasma or, or that blood donations not be compensated because that could be coercive. And so that's why most countries don't allow payment for either whole blood or plasma. So in the U.S., actually, whole blood is, well, it's usually not paid, but not because it's illegal, but because um, of issues with uh, contaminated blood. Uh, there is an FDA regulation that says that if you pay someone for blood, you have to label it as paid blood. And no hospital will use paid blood because they know that it comes, or they're, they're going to assume that it's from a higher risk population, and that's not a risk they're willing to take. However, there is no such regulation for blood plasma. So there would be no way for you to know whether this plasma is coming from a paid donor or an unpaid donor. But at this point, the majority of the market is for profit. That's just the way that it is. There are, there are places that are non-profit plasma donation centers. They're very limited, but they do exist. So if you ever go to a plasma center, because I've, I've been asked this before, like, oh, I give plasma and I go once a month. They allow me to give once a month. You know, are they are they making profit? And the answer to that is, uh, that's that sounds like a non-profit. If they're only allowing you to give once a month and not eight times a month, uh, it's probably not a for-profit industry. So you mentioned that people are getting paid for selling their plasma to these big companies. So if you're getting paid, why is it called a donation? Technically, people are getting paid for their time. That's the way that it's framed by the 
by the pharmaceutical companies. They're not paying for the plasma, they're paying for the time the people spent giving their plasma. And um, on average, how much do they get paid or given paid back for their time for donating plasma? So that varies widely. So usually what they do with the plasma companies are doing now is that they have a first month bonus. So I believe right now it's at about $975 for the first month and that's for eight donations. So the way that it works is that it's staggered. So let's say the first donation you get $100. If you come back you get $110 and so forth and it adds up to $975 only if you do the eight donations. Um, but after that then it's usually about $50 at this point. And they do have incentives and promotions. So there might be times when, because of a, of a bonus, they can make a little bit more. Uh, there are rewards programs also for uh, referrals. So it does seem like one of the ways that uh, people come in is through referrals. So I did a pilot survey of about with about 79 responses. And in about half of those cases, people had given plasma because they had been referred by someone. Um, and interestingly, the referrals, not just mouth, like person to person or mouth to mouth, but um, or word of mouth, I mean, but um, through social media also. So uh, since I've started um, investigating this topic, I get so many ads on Facebook and on radio streaming. And uh, it's just so interesting to me that you know, the the targeting, but also um, another thing that I've seen is that once you give plasma, because usually the way that you get paid is through an, uh, a card and there's an app that's attached to it and then you can uh, also like share on social media. And so that shows up on other people's feeds and like, oh, you know, if you give, you can also get a bonus. And so that's one of the strategies that they use to recruit donors. You're more likely to give plasma if you need money. And so where are the people that need money? That's the way that I think of it. Uh, so for instance, I had one person that I interviewed who told me that there was a time when she was unemployed, and she was on SNAP or food stamps, and that she just, she was a mother of four, she was a single parent, she just didn't have enough, and so she had to, she had to give plasma because she needed the money. And then she got a job, so she felt like the money was good and it could be helpful, but she was experiencing side effects. So she decided she was going to stop. And then at some point when there was another issue with lack of employment, then she went back. So at that point, she needed the money more than the side effects, if that, if that makes sense. Like it was, if she had to choose between the side effects and the money, the money was more important. I thought that that was, that was an interesting uh, finding and I'm uh, eager to see if that's something that holds up as I continue to interview more people. So you mentioned side effects on the um, like the FDA's website. They said that like donating plasma doesn't have many major side effects except for like dehydration and fatigue. But like the one that you said, the person interviewed, she said that she had some pretty major things. So was that like a specific case or was that like a pretty common occurrence of donating plasma a lot? So I think that's a great question. So. Um, the reality is that there's very limited research on the long-term effects of plasma donation. Um, and from the respondents that I've had, they have said, you know, after giving plasma several times, I started noticing this. Can they prove 
that it was because of plasma donation. Not necessarily because some of these people, when I asked, you know, have you talked to your doctor about it? The response was, well, I don't have a doctor. I don't have insurance. So there's no way for them to just connect it to that. Uh, I spoke to another respondent who said that she had started experiencing problems with blood pressure, with high blood pressure after giving plasma over several months and that she had never experienced any problems with high blood pressure. Could she attribute it to plasma donation? Well, no, because how it could have been anything. That's what she said. Do I believe it could be that? Yes. Do I need to seek medical attention? Probably. But right now I need money. So if they let me give plasma, I'm going to do it. I am skeptical about the FDA's take on it because it's easy to say, well, the, the, you know, the side effects are not that serious when in reality we don't actually know what the side effects are. So the answer, honestly, is that it's really, there's not enough evidence for us to, to say that there aren't any like randomly controlled trials or any scientific studies that look at, you know, what, what does it look like to give plasma 104 times in a year? To my knowledge, that doesn't exist. And so that's the type of research that I think is necessary. It's interesting to know what is the effect of giving plasma once a week or giving 25 times a year or 12 times a year. Like, is there an effect? So until we have those medical studies, we can't really know what the impact of varying amounts of frequency of donation are. Has there ever been any deaths occurred from overgiving plasma? There have been deaths associated with plasma donation, and plasma centers are required to record or report um, when deaths occur. Uh, those are fairly un- those are pretty uncommon. Those are very rare. However, that's now. But the plasma industry, the for-profit industry, really started in the 1960s, um, where there weren't even really regulations. So have there been deaths in prisons and in Latin America when there were there were plasma centers in Haiti and in Nicaragua? Yes, there there were. How many? That's not something that I have found uh, evidence of yet. So like, is anybody like today still regulating the industry to protect like the health of the donors? So the FDA is the body that regulates uh, blood plasma centers. Um, so they're the ones that have that say that you can collect this much volume, you could collect uh, with this frequency. These are the types of tests that you need to do on people before they can be approved as plasma donors. There's also, so there's, for instance, there's a, a physical or a medical exam that people have to take when they start. And then every four months, they need to undergo like a follow-up. So all those types of regulations are uh, stipulated by the FDA. And so when we first reached out to you, you shared a lot of like articles and different sources, and a lot of them like sort of revolved around the fundamental fundamental question of like, is it ethical to or to get paid to sell blood? Um, yeah. So like, is it? Do you think it's ethical to do that? So my research really focuses on the experience of giving plasma and what people use the the funds for. Uh, so what I'm seeing is that people often use this, they, they give plasma, and I use the term give because I don't want to make assumptions about uh, the extent to which people see themselves as, as selling or buying, sorry, selling or donating, because the terminology that the industry uses is donating. Uh, but 
in what I'm seeing when I talk to people is that they don't necessarily see it that way at times. They see it, actually, some people say that it, they see it as both. Some people say, well, I'm just selling it. This is my income. And actually, if for some reason they can't give plasma, they are upset because they needed the income. So, for instance, um, there are times when if an adverse effect happens, you can be told you can't come back for... X number of weeks or something like that. Or if your hemoglobin is too low, you can't give today. And that actually is detrimental to the economic well-being of people. So it's it's a complex topic in the sense that it is an economic opportunity that people are seeking out because there are a lack of other legal alternatives to make cash, particularly when you're experiencing financial hardship. And on the other side, too, the people who benefit from plasma protein therapies are people who need these therapies often. Uh, these are life-saving medications. So it's it's really hard uh, to really look at it as is, is it to say one way or the other. Um, and so I'm excited to continue doing this research just to learn more about how the donors themselves see their role and how they perceive this process. And when we sort of like researched um, plasma like donation centers near us, um, the three like locations that popped up first were near the Ypsilanti area. Um, and I think in comparison to Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti maybe has like a higher population of impoverished people. So do you think that's a coincidence? So in a recent co-authored paper with H. Luke Schaefer and Andrew Gorgan Kaler, uh, where we look at the interlinkage between blood plasma donation and poverty, we found that plasma centers were overrepresented in high poverty neighborhoods where people of color are more likely to reside. So um, it is not a surprise um, at this point that plasma centers are more likely to be in uh, lower income neighborhoods. Um, other um, findings that we thought were interesting is that uh, it seemed like these centers were also more likely to be near colleges that were attended by first-generation students or lower-income students. So, for instance, the plasma center in Ipsy is close to EMU, uh, also closer to Washtenaw Community College. Uh, and those are patterns that I've seen uh, when I look at them. I, 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 that research is ongoing, so this is like very preliminary. Uh, but one of the things that I've done is just go on Google Maps and look at, put it like, where's the plasma center and what's around it? And that's one of the things that I see often. I see college campuses. And um, that's really not surprising because what plasma centers want are ideally healthy people, and young people tend to be healthier. Um, what plasma centers also want are people who become frequent donors, who are reliable. And so um, college students ideally would be great candidates for that. Um, but preliminary research indicates that uh, college students may not be the ones who are donating the most. Um, it might be intermittent, uh, whereas it seems that people who have a higher level of need are the ones that are more likely to become frequent donors. Um, and just from the preliminary uh, interviews that I've done, uh, it does seem that uh, plasma donation, uh, the, the frequency with which people give really has to do with the level of economic hardship that people are experiencing at a certain time. Is there like a big body of people in the Washington community um, or the county who donate plasma regularly? So I don't actually know the answer to that question because the plasma industry is a for-profit industry and the industry doesn't really release 
like donor information or numbers on the amount of people on a by county by county basis. So there's really no way to know that. The data that is released looks at the the number of blood plasma collections per year. Um, And so for instance, in in 2021, there were 43.8 million plasma collections in the US. And that was actually a 20% decrease from pre-COVID times. So the number of plasma donations has been increasing since the Great Recession. Um, and from the beginning of the Great Recession to around 2019, right before COVID, um, the numbers had tripled. But then because of COVID, numbers went down about 20%. The rates were down 20% in 2020 and 2021. Uh, but I'm interested to see what 2022 looks like because, uh, as you likely know, uh, you know, people have been struggling with inflation. And so things are getting more expensive and the dollar is just not going as far as it, as it used to. Uh, so it might be the case that, so I, I would predict that numbers of plasma donations are, are once again going up. And have you personally visited any of these plasma donation centers to kind of see like what was on there? No, actually, that's one of the things that is on my to-do list that I need to do in the next few weeks. Uh, so what I've really focused on thus far is looking at the at more like the macro level. So how does the industry work? Where are the plasma centers located? Uh, what are the FDA guidelines? Uh, but the next step is the interviews and the on I guess on the ground research. And I've talked to a few people, but I need to get to a to a plasma center. Um, I have heard from reporters that I've spoken to that um, often. It can be challenging uh, to, well, maybe because they're reporters, but they have gotten some pushback uh, from plasma centers and they've been asked to leave. I wonder how they'll take it, uh, but maybe they'll say, sure, come in. And <laughs> uh, Do you know any plasma donors personally? Actually, I have. So when I first heard about blood plasma donation, I had never heard about it before, but I've been surprised uh, to see that when I mentioned it, often colleagues tell me, oh, I used to do that in college or something like that. They don't do it regularly anymore, but at some point in their life, they did it. And was there anything in particular that motivated you to research this topic? Yeah, so I first learned of this topic uh, reading a book called $2 a Day. Uh, by Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer, and in that book there is someone, uh, one of the um, people that's being profiled in the book, and she gives plasma, I believe it's in Tennessee, and uh, she's walking to the plasma center and she is having um, like protein bars because she wants to make sure that she has the hemoglobin necessary for her to be able to give plasma and apparently she's thin so she wants to make sure she's at least 110 pounds because that's one of the eligibility requirements um, and so it became clear that I mean again it's framed as a, as a donation by the industry but the way that she was treating it she wasn't treating it like this is a donation because when you think of donation you think of something that you do voluntary that you often do out of the goodness of your heart um, and this didn't necessarily seem like it was voluntary. It was more something that was necessary for her to support her family. And then when I looked into it further, I learned that there really wasn't a lot of research, almost really, it was non-existent. The research on plasma donation that I had found, well, not plasma donation, but on blood plasma really focused on the patient. And so, like, and there was, there's research in hematology and in the sciences on the benefits of plasma protein therapies, but there really isn't any research on the side of the donors. Like, what is it like 
to be a donor, what are the medical effects or the risks associated with being a donor, that literature is really scarce. So that's where I've come in and that's the research that I'm interested in. Um, because also looking more at the topic, I've learned that there are um, lobbying efforts and that pharmaceutical companies are also involved in the policy making or have been involved in the policy making process. So for instance, the policy that was established, the original policy saying that you could give plasma two times per week, 104 times per year, and the volume of plasma that you could give, all those standards were established with representatives from the industry. So on the other side, if you look at donors, there's no advocacy group on behalf of donors. So it's a very one-sided operation. And so I just thought that that was interesting. And I thought that um, there should be more interest in what the effects to the donors are. Um, do you think that your research will make a big impact on the plasma industry? I mean, my goal in this is really to safeguard the entrance of interest of vulnerable people. So I come from a background where I've worked with low income populations and underrepresented populations, people of color. And uh, I understand what it's like to have limited resources and to you, know, you need to make ends meet. And I see how appealing giving plasma can be. And so I'm concerned about what the effects of this might be for people that are doing it because they don't have, they, they may not have another choice. Um, but, but what are the, what are the, what's the liability? So for instance, if there are health effects to this, are the plasma companies going to be responsible for that? You know, if, if let's say you give plasma and you pass out and you can't go to work, who's going to be responsible for that? So are you potentially doing more harm to yourself than good? Uh, I, I don't know, and that's that's the issue. I think that we should know more about about that. So, like, plasma is obviously, like, a super important thing to, like, donate, but are people, like, skeptical of, don like, people who maybe don't need to donate for money, but, like, are they skeptical of donating because of, like, health concerns or health risks? So that's a good question. So, um... The people that I've spoken to, for the most part, they have they have said that they give plasma because they need the money. So, people who give plasma for purely altruistic reasons are not people that I have had contact with yet. Do you think it will jeopardize uh, the people who really need need the plasma? Would it jeopardize their health if less people give plasma? Yeah. It would. It would because. Uh, if less people gave plasma, then there may not be enough uh, plasma to make the medications that other people need. However, it's important to think about it's important to think about what the health effects are for donors and at what cost they're experiencing those health effects for the benefit of someone else. So, if we don't have enough research on what the health effects are, and they're just being told, "Oh, this is fairly safe," then that's not necessarily being truthful. Uh, so, yes, it's important to think about the patients, but I believe it's equally important to think about the donors and for the donors to have the full information that they need to know, you know if, what they're, if what they're doing is actually safe. And as our final question, do you have a message to the existing or potential plasma donors in the community? Hmm, that's a good question. Usually the questions I get asked are, you know, what should policymakers do? So that answer I have. Um, but the donors, so one of the, the pieces of feedback that, I'm, that I've gotten is that I'm discouraging uh, potential donors 
and that this is going to affect the, the patients who rely on these services. Um, but given that likely donors are also more likely to be vulnerable people, I just think that their health and well-being is equally important and that they're not receiving the attention that they need. Uh, so that, that's why my goal is actually to think about uh, what policymakers are doing in terms of thinking about the issues uh, regarding, for instance, health effects. And, then, and not just that, but if people are having to sell their plasma because they can't make ends meet, then what does that say about the safety net in the United States? So. The government, should the government be doing more so that people don't feel that they have the need to sell their plasma? Should there be additional cash assistance programs, for instance? Is it people who have children that are that are struggling and they can't afford, you know, to support their families and they're doing this because they feel like I don't have a choice? So that, that's the kind of information that I want to know. And maybe the issue is, yes, the FDA has to further consider what the health repercussions are and hold the, the plasma companies accountable in terms of you need to do this research and you need to be willing to work with independent third parties in order to get a non-biased response of what the effects actually are because that's not happening right now. So for instance, when you think about um, medications, usually there are trials that happen and then they have to tell you, well, we did these trials and these are all the side effects, right? But with plasma donation, they, they didn't do all of those uh, tests on like what happens when you give 10 times a year or 20 times a year or 50 or 100 times a year. That doesn't exist. And that's because the FDA doesn't require it. And until policymakers say, hey, FDA, you gotta, you gotta think about this. You gotta change the policies. We have to do more, you know, more testing or more studies, more medical studies. Um, the pharmaceutical companies are not going to step up. And also, if they do discover that there are adverse health effects, does it mean that people shouldn't do it anymore? Or should it just mean that people should be given that information and that they should decide on their own? Or does it mean that if adverse effects happen, the pharmaceutical companies are going to be responsible for the costs associated with medical treatments to address that issue? See, those are all unanswered questions right now. So one of my goals is just raising awareness of the issue and uh, to get it on policymakers' radar. Uh, you know, go to your go to your local plasma center and take a look at you know who are the people that are here. Uh, when I started doing this research initially, I looked at it as an economic coping strategy for low-income people. But what I found is that this is not just people who are very low income. I've spoken to one of the people I interviewed was a teacher. She was a full-time teacher with over a decade of experience. She enjoyed her job, but she didn't get paid enough to support her family. And so this is something that she was doing so that she could keep teaching. So what does it say about our society when a teacher has to sell plasma so she can keep being a teacher? Right? And that's not, that's not on the pharmaceutical companies. That's on, that's on policymakers, right? Uh, so those are the types of issues that I'm I'm really interested in and really in, interested in raising awareness to because I look at this as an issue of um, that reflects the inequality or the growing income inequality that um, the U.S. has experienced within the last couple of decades due to fiscal policies that the country has taken.